Welcome to The Trauma Tales, a production of Third Star Media and Shanna White Psychology. This podcast deals with some pretty heavy topics, including domestic violence, substance abuse, mental illness, crimes against children, self-harm, sexual abuse, multi-generational trauma and suicide. If you don't think that you're in the right headspace to deal with any of these topics right now, please cut yourself some slack, take a deep breath and come back another day. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians and the elders in all the lands on which we work and meet. I appreciate the significant place Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders hold and I identify them as the first Australians. I value and celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history, culture and future and am committed to supporting reconciliation through speaking the truth, pursuing justice and creating opportunities to heal together. I pay my deepest respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders past and present and acknowledge all Aboriginal children, young people, families and staff who I provide services to now and in the future. Trauma. It's a word that you've probably heard thrown around quite a bit. But what is trauma, really? My name is Shanna White, but you can call me Shan. I'm a psychologist, and defining trauma is a pretty big part of my day-to-day life. But my job goes beyond providing a dictionary description of what trauma is, because that's just the tip of the iceberg, as they say. No, my job is to define trauma and highlight its impacts and, most importantly, to help those who live through trauma to figure out how to thrive beyond it. I've spent years working with children, adolescents and adults. I try to guide them through the process of recovering from complex trauma. Needless to say, I've seen and heard a lot. And now, you will too. The reason I called the podcast The Trauma Tales is a gentle nod to a famous piece of Middle English literature. The Canterbury Tales was a book written by Geoffrey Chaucer in the late 14th century and it covers the journey of a group of travellers to Canterbury during which the travellers shared stories as they went. Now these stories or tales explored the length and breadth of the human experience with a wide cast of characters to depict the vast expanse of differences between us. As a piece of literature It's relevant to trauma not only as it's designed to represent, well, represent for the time and the age and the socioeconomic status of the author, the extremities of human behaviour and experiences, but also everything in between. Trauma's the same. It doesn't discriminate. Regardless of age, gender, culture, race, religion, education, finances, genetics, ability or intellect, no one is immune. In Buddhism, the first noble truth speaks to suffering. Understanding that everyone will encounter suffering, what separates us and makes us different, makes us stronger, smarter, more resilient and less vulnerable, is how we heal. The people I interview here have all experienced trauma. They are sharing to enrich the lives of others and hopefully teach. 
But their trauma story is not their only story. So to protect their identity and the other stories of their life, everyone here is using a pseudonym. Not only to protect them, but because they're so relatable. They could be you or someone you love, your friend or colleague or or even your Uber driver. No one is immune from trauma and everybody has a story. So we want to explore how people heal. What works for people in real world scenarios and experiences? What about what doesn't work? How do they know what works and what doesn't? I need to be very clear from the outset that while I am a psychologist, I will not be providing any assessment, treatment, interventions or recommendations for the people I interview. The only part of my professional skills that I'll be using in this podcast will be my ability to hopefully make people feel safe. Safety is in the direct opposition of how we feel when we experience trauma. So to make people feel safe is the most important thing I can do. And sometimes it's the only thing I can do. I thought I would start by telling you a story about a woman I encountered many years ago. She presented in the ED with a tiny baby in her arms. Now this baby couldn't have been more than a couple of weeks old. A really cute little girl, uh, fast asleep. Now the mother, when asked, told the triage nurse that there was something wrong with her baby. And then when the triage nurse pressed for more information, this mother couldn't explain. Um, She just kept saying there's something wrong with the baby. So a doctor comes over and he asked the woman, what's the matter with the baby? And again, she kept saying there's something wrong with her baby, but she didn't give any more information. Like she couldn't describe it. The, the baby didn't look any different, wasn't behaving any different. It was feeding normally. The doctor spoke to the nurse and he said to them to take this mum and this baby into the kids' ED for some preliminary tests. So she did. And at the same time, um, the, the father of the baby arrived. And the nurse asked the father, what's wrong with the baby? And the father said, he didn't know either, but his wife wouldn't let it be. Like she wouldn't leave him alone and had been complaining for about two hours that the baby wasn't okay. But he then said all that he saw was a sleeping baby. The mother was told that there was nothing wrong with the baby that they could find and that they should probably go home. And the mother refused. She was indignant and determined that there was something wrong with her baby And she was getting more and more desperate for someone to listen to her. She was really rational when she rocked up to the hospital, but the more and more people kept telling her that that the baby was fine, the more and more desperate she became. The father tried to console the mother uh, and he was like offering support, but he, he was also pretty doubtful that there was anything wrong with the infant. And he was telling her that they should probably just go home because, you know, they were causing a scene and she was being embarrassing. Again, this mother refused. The doctor then, I think he was trying to give her like a comfort, but it fell really badly. He said that nervous feeling with a new baby was really normal and that it's made worse by a lack of sleep that is associated with having a newborn. And this mother wasn't having it. Nearly hysterical now that no one's listening to her She broke down and she cried with her baby in her arms and she refused to hand the baby over to hospital staff. Now, I was feeling informed when I saw another nurse talking to that same doctor about the baby. The doctor was leaning 
towards sending them home. He, he was like, the baby's temperature is normal, the obs are perfect, and there's nothing, there's no sign of anything to report. But the nurse, uh, an amazing Scottish woman with a delightful accent, which is how I knew she was Scottish, said that she felt that the doctor should run a few more tests because mothers often know things that we couldn't see. Then she said words I will never forget. She said, I'd rather be wrong and know for sure than send them home with any doubts. They went back into the room and they did some more tests on the baby. And at this point, the doctor actually seemed kind of frustrated because, uh, I, I don't know, maybe because he was busy and it's an ED and he's got stuff to do and they're always busy. Uh, but this nurse was determined. Uh, they did some more tests and after these tests were done, the mum and the baby were put into a room on the children's ward. And because it was pretty late at night by this stage, the dad went home and, yeah, they, they went into that room by themselves. So after another few hours, nurses came back to the mother and baby and they said to her, um, well, they told her they were going to do another test. As some of her earlier results, the baby's earlier results had come back positive and needed further investigation. So the doctor had ordered another test. And the mother and baby were taken into an examination room where they performed what's called a lumbar puncture on this tiny, tiny baby. Remember, it's only like not even two weeks old. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's basically a very large needle is inserted into the space between two vertebrae to remove a sample of cerebrospinal fluid. That's the fluid that surrounds your brain and spinal cord and protects them from injury. So as you can probably imagine or may have experienced yourself if you've ever had this procedure, it's extremely painful and it can be quite dangerous, especially on a tiny little human with tiny little bones. So mother was absolutely beside herself at this point and she was saying that she had no idea what was wrong with her baby that, but that she was getting really scared. Nothing could take away her fears for her little one. The mother and the baby were taken back to the same room for the night after this test was done. And by this time, it's like after midnight, well after midnight, like one in the morning or something. The mother and the baby were left in the room and the staff were told not to enter. Only specific people were allowed to go into that room until they knew more about what was happening. So the mother and baby were alone. Can you imagine how alone and frightened those hours must have been for her? Early the next morning, a really large group of people entered the room and the, so the mother was standing with the baby in her arms when everyone walked in. There was like a senior pediatrician, a neonatologist, the nurse that had been caring for them, the numb of the unit, the original ED doctor, the one that told the mother there was nothing wrong and the one that also suggested repeatedly that they go home. And there was also a, a small group of student doctors, about probably about five or six, um, hovering like just inside the door. And this mother stood looking just <laughs> exhausted, really. She just looked exhausted. She's in the same clothes she's wearing the day before. She's got a tear-stained face. She's got bags under her eyes and just this look of sheer desperation and terror. The baby, however, was fast asleep in her arms, bundled into a little blanket with a pink beanie on. You should tell her. That was the head of the unit speaking to the ED doctor. And the head of the unit 
said this as she gently moved towards the mother. After a really long pause, the doctor from ED, the one who suggested she go home because there was nothing wrong with the baby, says, your daughter has a highly infectious strain of bacterial meningitis. Really quickly, the colour left that mother's face and she started to sway. And the senior doctor, the one who had just moved um, and said you should tell her, had really cleverly, silently positioned herself for this exact moment. The mother started to sway and with a single movement, the doctor took the baby from the mother's arms with one hand and used the other hand to grab the mother's arm and guide her to the armchair that was sitting right behind her. The mother collapsed into the chair as the news hit her. She clearly didn't know exactly what the words meant. She could feel the gravity and the severity of those words. The nurse moved forward to care for the mother. And after a few minutes and everyone in the room maintaining a stoic silence, the mother had started to regain her senses and could breathe again. She said, what does that mean exactly? The senior doctor crouched beside her, still holding the baby, and said, your daughter has a type of infection in the fluid around her brain. She is extremely sick. You attended before she had any symptoms, and because of that, your daughter is likely to be okay. We need to put her on a high dose of medication for the next few weeks and you will both need to stay here. The mother reached for her daughter instinctively. The doctor passed the baby girl gently to her mum with the words, if you hadn't come in or you had left when we told you to, we may not have been able to save her. This particular strain of meningitis has an incredibly high mortality rate, particularly in infants. And it's highly likely that she wouldn't have been with us if you'd left it another day. I took note at that moment. I watched that doctor so intently. I watched her movements, her gestures, and most of all, I watched her hands. She bent down to the mother's level. She spoke really gently with strong eye contact and she didn't take her hand off the mother's shoulder. Not once. Then something changed. The doctor stood up and turned to the group in the room. The nurse was still beside the mother, monitoring her to make sure she was okay and, well, actually most likely to grab the baby just in case something happened. And then the doctor addressed the students. Take note of this. Each of you will follow this case to the end because I cannot stress enough how important it is to listen to the mothers of the babies and children you care for. They know their babies. They are your eyes and ears. Always listen to the mothers. I'm very happy to report that that baby is now a very healthy, happy and rambunctious six-year-old. How do I know this? Because I was that mother. That baby is my daughter. We stayed in an isolation bed for the next three weeks. Anyone who visited wore masks for the first few days until the baby was out of the woods. After the second day in, she started to present with symptoms. A fever. She was pale. 
excessive sleep, not eating. But because she'd already had medication to combat the bacteria in her system, they weren't nearly as bad as they could have been and the symptoms passed within the next two days. My baby slowly started gaining weight and eventually grew colour in her face. She spent more time awake and then she started to look around. One morning I woke up and she was looking at me. It was the first time she'd looked at me in two weeks. Every day she got better and better and eventually she was strong enough to go home. Once we were home, I had to learn to cope with my own trauma in that space. In that time, I was fortunate in that I could access resources to support me. I immediately started speaking about what happened. I learned about what my trauma was and how it impacted on me. I reached out and I got help from professionals and from my circle. I also learned about my own guilt, that my baby survived when so many others didn't. Even now, all these years later, when I talk about that time of my life, I can feel the emotions that I experienced coming back. I can feel my heart racing and I can see my hands shake. But now, this only happens when I decide to speak about it. I'm not haunted by it anymore. See, trauma really is part of the human experience. None of us is immune. Thank you for joining me for the first episode of The Trauma Tales. A new episode will be released every fortnight and they will cover all areas and topics where trauma has occurred. I'm really looking forward to sharing these with you. If you'd like to follow our social pages, the links are in the show notes. Let us know what you think. If this episode of The Trauma Tales has impacted on you, please contact one of the following resources. Lifeline, Kids Helpline, 1-800-RESPECT, Men's Helpline. The contact details for each of these are in the show notes. Or if you would like to contact us to share your story on our podcast, or if you want to sponsor our show, please email us at thetraumatales, all lowercase, all one word, at gmail.com.